Okay, so we are currently in Golders Green and we will be here for the next three days. This will be the fourth outreach from 2017. It's absolutely fair to say this has been the busiest year for ex-Catholics of Christ ever. February saw us in Oxford, that was brilliant. Uh, June saw us in Cambridge, that was excellent. October saw us in Bristol, that was excellent. And here we are, the back end of October, going into early November in Golders Green. And Golders Green, for those that don't know, is North London. Golders Green is a very affluent Jewish area. In fact, the hotel that we are staying at is owned by a Jewish gentleman. A lot of Jewish people all around us. We did a quick recce last night. Very busy area, a lot of activity here. And uh, Patrick was out first thing this morning, uh, giving tracks to those going to London via Golders Green Tube Station. After the reading from this morning, we are heading up to Parliament to meet uh, Brother Martin. And our plan is to do a video introduction to my Oliver Cromwell article. I spent around 18 months looking at Oliver Cromwell and the idea came to me maybe three or four months ago to go to London to go to Parliament. He said, why would that be? Well, outside Parliament, there's a huge statue uh, dedicated to Oliver Cromwell. There are two statues in central London and Lord willing, we will visit both this morning. So a lot of work to do, but uh, as always, not just taking in the sights, but uh, speaking to people about the Saviour, giving out tracts, and once we've finished the Cromwell um, material, Patrick wants to visit some spots which uh, concern Houdini. Houdini, the great American magician. And he said, why would that be? Well, Patrick's written about Houdini, and for November's newsletter, you can read all about Houdini. Quite possibly America's greatest uh, magician, a very interesting character, like a lot of these people, had an unfortunate interest in the occult, which you can read about during uh, November's newsletter. After we've done uh, Houdini, after we've done Cromwell, we will do some street work, of course. So a lot to pack in over the next few days. So what I thought I would do for this morning, if I may, is look at some subjects which I prepared for Bristol, but wasn't able to do so. To my surprise, my study on King David, my profile on King David, ran to seven parts and, as a result, slightly eclipsed some of the other messages which I prepared for Bristol. So, Lord willing, this morning and perhaps tomorrow morning and our final morning, I may be able to look at some of the subjects which I wasn't able to do so due to running out of time. Proverbs chapter 4, Proverbs chapter 4 is our text for this morning and I want to call this message God's Word. Back in uh, Cambridge I did a message called The Word of God and in some ways this will be a continuation but looking at different verses and of course we are Bible believing Christians we make no apologies for that. We take the Bible very seriously in fact during our trip to uh, Cardiff two weeks ago a chap came over to us a very aggressive chap I would say an atheist without any doubts, but leaning towards the socialist perspective. And he said this, he said, uh, so do you really believe in the Bible? I mean, like every word in the Bible. And I said, absolutely. And he looked absolutely shocked with such a statement. He's been brainwashed into believing that the scripture is subjective. The scripture was written just by a group of men that got together one Sunday afternoon. 
But of course, we know as Bible believers that this book can heal you. This book can hurt you. This book can cut you. This book can console you. This is an incredible book. This is a supernatural book. Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. Look at verse 20, please. My son, attend to my words. Incline thine ear unto my sayings. Let not depart from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thine heart. So in the context, you've got Solomon, the son of David. A good picture of the son of God. And here Solomon is writing the Proverbs. But he was a very uh, unique man. A very intellectual man. And also a very carnal man. A man with two natures. Much like Oliver Cromwell. In fact, just this morning I was... Going through my article, which will go online December time, Lord willing. And I was reminding myself as to the two natures in Oliver Cromwell. Very worldly. Was into horse racing. Was into wrestling. Was into opera. Would drink, would smoke. And on several occasions, he would come into contact with James Fox, the founder of the Quaker movement, who questioned Cromwell's salvation. Now, for me, this is no problem whatsoever. I see straight away a man with two natures. But for someone like Fox, he wouldn't have believed in two natures. And on several occasions, when he spoke to Oliver Cromwell, he would very gently witness to him. He would say, get your eyes off the crown and onto Christ. And that probably got under the skin of Cromwell. And yet Cromwell was a very professional politician, took it all in his stride, was very stoic. And yet for most people, if they were to meet someone like Fox would get somewhat uh, irritated with having their salvation questioned. My son, verse 20, attend to my words in the context, the Proverbs, but in the larger uh, strand of things, the scripture, the entire Bible. Incline thine ear unto my sayings. This could be a good reference to God the Father speaking to God the Son, and therefore God the Son speaking to the church. Let them not depart from thine eyes, verse 21. Keep them in the midst of thine heart. So it's rather simple. You get saved. You've trusted the Savior. You start reading the scripture. And that keeps you out of trouble. Nine times out of ten. Somebody once said that the uh, Bible will keep you away from sin. Or sin will keep you away from the Bible. A lot of truth in that. And here, the theme has been set. The statement has been given to Attend to the words, keep your eyes firmly on the scripture, and if you do so, you will never stumble. As we go through the Old Testament, we read an awful lot about King Solomon, and his greatest sin was idolatry. That's the number one sin in the scripture, idolatry. And I may discuss that in a few moments' time. Go to chapter 7, please. Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7. Look at verse 1, please. My son... Keep my words and lay up my commandments with thee. Keep my commandments and live, and my law as the apple of thine eye. Bind them upon thy fingers, write them upon the table of thine heart. So Solomon, first of all, was not only a king, but he was a father. And as a father, he wants to pass godly advice to his son. That's kind of common sense. And yet within five minutes of Solomon penning, writing, making such a statement, his old nature would get a hold of him. Technically speaking, nobody was born again in the Old Testament. Nobody had an old nature from the Old Testament. So when I say old nature, 
understand that I'm doing so through the lenses, through the understanding of the New Testament. And I get that from Romans chapter 7, where Paul would lament over his battle. For the Old Testament saints, just for the record and very briefly, they were saved by believing on a promise. We are saved by believing on a person. They got imputation. We get imputation. But what we get... uh is the new birth. We get the triunity living within us. Back in the Old Testament, they were commissioned. They were anointed. So there was a slight difference. There's a difference in the mode as to how people were saved, but ultimately it goes back to trusting, goes back to believing. So we can use the term old nature as long as we qualify it, as long as we explain what is going on. But Solomon wants his son to listen to his words, first one. He wants his son to lay up his commandments he wants his son to live like godly, like each and every day. And it says, uh, latter part of verse 2, And my law as the apple of thine eye. Throughout the Psalms, the greats would suggest, would uh, state very clearly and unequivocally that they loved the law. And if you love the Lord, you should love the law. But you try and keep the law. And I spent years discussing this. I will say that it's impossible. A lot of Jewish people all around gold is green, like I say, very religious, wearing their clothing, making no eye contact whatsoever with the Gentiles. They have an external uh, appearance of godliness. They are very careful who they associate with. They rarely speak English. And to the outside world, it looks somewhat macabre, somewhat unusual, somewhat bizarre. But if the truth be known, they are trying to keep the law. They are taking the law of Moses very serious, very seriously. And yet they can't be saved by keeping the law. They won't even come anywhere near keeping the law. And if you were to attempt to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ, they would go hysterical. Number one, they've been brainwashed into not believing in him. Number two, they are in bondage to a works-based system. And number three, when the temple went down, 70 AD, the Jewish uh, people came together, had to redefine Judaism held a council called the Council of Jaffa, which met 99 AD, which pretty much dismissed the New Testament, dismissed the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have, have ever read the Talmud, uh, make some awful derogatory statements concerning our blessed Saviour. And yet saying that, we still love the Jews, we don't want to be spiteful or mean towards them, but when it comes to the law, they love the law, we love the law. Uh, but we know that we can't keep the law, or we know that the law will not save us. And from their perspective, they love the law and they are attempting to keep the law. So, so far, so good. Solomon wants to encourage his son. Any parent wants to encourage their son or their daughter. That's kind of normal. But it would be helpful if godly parents could explain to their children the problems of the old nature. That which I want to do, I don't do. And what I want to do, I don't do. Romans chapter 7, it would help so many people. Go to chapter 8, please. Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8, look at verse 17, if you will. I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. That, of course, is a timeless piece of scripture. The Bible says we love God because he first loved us. Salvation is of the Jews. The Savior was a Jew. This book that I'm reading, this book that's in my lap, is a Jewish book. Written first and foremost to the Jews. The Jews are special people. Through the Jews came the Jewish Messiah. The saviour of the world. Some Jews would receive him. Many would not. 
I love them that love me. And those that see me early shall find me. So it's rather obvious to me that, number one, if you're not saved, get saved, get saved early. Don't delay getting saved. Most people that get saved later in life regret it. Most people that have come to the Savior later in life bring a lot of baggage with them, a lot of problems. Because once you are set in your ways, it's very difficult to undo those old ways, such bad habits. And as people get older, the law becomes immaterial to them. The Lord is a distant concept. They have no real understanding. That's why we like to say, get them when they're young. Approach the younger people. Not too young, of course, but those that aren't set in their ways. Go to chapter 13, please. Proverbs chapter 13. Proverbs chapter 13. Look at verse 13, if you will. Whoso despiseth the word shall be destroyed. But he that feareth the commandments shall be rewarded. The law of the wise is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. Pretty severe. It's very difficult to read the scripture and be passive. It's very difficult to read the scripture and not have a view. Of course, if you're not saved, this book isn't for you. The message goes right over your heads. But if you are saved and this is presented to you and let's say you're not walking closely with the Lord, it's going to grate with you. It's going to be somewhat of a pain to have to listen to, to have to digest, to have to deal with. We uh, spoke to a sister some years ago. We interviewed a sister some years ago. She had a great testimony. It was Patrick that was able to speak to her. And she shared a testimony. And she'd come from a very uh, colourful background. And after four or five years of that testimony, that interview being on our website, we got an email from a party saying that such and such concerned this woman was no longer a Christian. And I thought, really? And I did some made some inquiries. And at first I couldn't contact her. I wasn't sure how to contact her. And I went on to Facebook, found her, sent her a PM, still wanting to give her the benefits of the doubt. And she got back to me maybe three days later, saying that she was no longer a Christian. And on top of that, she was now into witchcraft. I thought, what a shock. And here we are. Today is Halloween, just for the record. A very wicked day. And I thought to myself this at the time. Well, she's no, she's no longer a Christian. We took the interview down, obviously. But I would suggest this, that that woman read quite a bit of Bible. She told us that. That woman had some kind of a relationship with the Lord. Would have had some love of the law, to some extent anyway. And I would suggest this, that if she was to hear this message, very unlikely, I know, but if she was to hear this message or someone like her and as an ex-Christian, quote unquote, would be very grieved, very grieved to hear such a message going back to the fact that this book can hurt you and it can heal you. It can cut you. It can also console you. 13 again. Whoso despiseth the word shall be destroyed. Like her, for example. But he that feareth the commandment shall be rewarded. Now, commandment uh, here is in the singular, but makes no difference. Commandment can refer to the commandments like the scripture, can refer to one part of the scripture, but can also refer to the entire scripture. 14 again, and I'll move on. The law of the wise is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. This woman 
would have been offered salvation. This woman would have received salvation. Whether or not she was actually saved is not for us to say. The jury is out. I would suggest she probably was never saved to begin with. But nevertheless, she has become an enemy of the Lord. And I can't think of anything worse than someone coming to the Lord, having a relationship of some kind with the Lord, reading the scripture, she was a King James believer from memory, and then turning around and saying, no, thank you, Jesus. You can keep your word. You can keep your law. And going not just back to her old way of life, but becoming involved with witchcraft, with the occult, and as such, would despise the word of God and were gone to be destroyed. Go to chapter 15, please. Proverbs chapter 15. Proverbs chapter 15. Look at verse 14, if you will. The heart of him that hath understanding seeketh knowledge, but the mouth of fools feedeth on foolishness. All the days of the afflicted are evil. But he that is of a merry heart hath a continual feast. The Bible speaks about having a perfect peace, a peace which passes all understanding. The scripture speaks about life and death issues. And if you don't read your Bible very often, if you don't study your Bible very often, your relationship will be diminished. Your relationship with the Lord will suffer terribly. You'll be tossed to and fro. You will never be able to really ground yourself or others you'll be in constant need of reassurance and I can think of one particular person that I shan't name who is having a difficult time at the moment and is in constant need of reassurance a new Christian and I have to wonder sometimes how much time this new Christian spends in the scripture the heart of him or her that hath understanding verse 14 seeketh knowledge the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge but the mouth of fools, unsaved people, feedeth on foolishness, like evolution, like atheism, or like religion, like Catholicism, or even Judaism. All these religions, if the truth be known, have been uh, set up, reinvented, uh, prolonged to give people a sense of doing something. Go back to what I said a few moments ago, when the second temple went down, 70 AD, the Jews were in an awful state. The Messiah had been and gone, prophesied back in the Old Testament. Many had been destroyed by Titus. Many had starved to death as a result of the siege around the temple. And due to one trigger-happy uh, Roman soldier, the temple was destroyed, prophesied back in Matthew chapter 24. And the Jews said, what do we do now? Was it all for nothing? Did Abraham really say what he said? Did Moses really say what he said? Did David really say what he said? What is the point of being a Jew? We've lost two temples. And you would have thought shortly that some bright spark somewhere would have said, well, let's go back to the scripture. Let's look at Isaiah 53. Let's look at Psalm 22, Micah chapter 5. But of course they didn't. Their hearts were hardened. Going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Turn, please, to verse uh, 28. We're still in Proverbs 15. Look at 28, please. The heart of the righteous studieth to answer, but the mouth of the wicked poureth out evil things. It's good to study, and yet Solomon would say that too much studying, too much reading, can be tiresome, can be somewhat of a bore. Most 
scholars, most uh, well-to-do PhDs, pastors, people that you would know if I was to name just a few of them, spend a lot of time reading. When I got John MacArthur's reference Bible, when I first got saved, I was reading to the forward, and it said that uh, Dr. MacArthur spends 40 hours a week reading his Bible. 40 hours a week, that's 8 hours a day, 5 days a week, it's like a full-time job. And no mention of street work, no mention of tracking, no mention of evangelizing, just 8 hours a day, 5 days a week. And I thought, is that what it means to be a Christian preacher, a minister? I wonder. I've always liked to think that a man who is born again, especially a King James, a Bible believer, would spend as much time as he could Reading, of course. Studying, of course. You were told to study, to show yourself approved unto God. A workman that needed not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And yet at the same time, you were told to preach the gospel in season and out of season. On the drive down to Golders Green, Patrick was telling me that Dr. McGee had come to England some years ago. And uh, Dr. McGee, uh, J. Vernon McGee, a very respectable uh, Bible teacher, and I appreciated him when I first got saved. Travelled to a part of uh, the UK where Shakespeare was from. I didn't know that. Stratford-upon-Avon. And he saw some plays whilst he was here. Took in the sights whilst he was here. And I made the statement, but do you think he street preached? And of course the answer was no. Do you think he gave out tracts? And the answer was probably not. Now, for me, that's a great travesty. For me, that's not what being a minister is all about. But unfortunately, and I'll say it one more time, these men, not questioning their salvation, are in a system. And when you're in a system, it takes over everything. And when they come out of a system, and sometimes they do, you rarely hear from them again. The heart of the righteous, 28 again, studieth to answer. First Peter chapter 3 says to be ready at all times to give an answer of the hope that is within you. But the mouth of the wicked, unsaved of course, poureth out evil things like, there is no God, the Big Bang is correct, Holy Mother Church is a real thing, the Pope is a vicar of Christ, there's no infallible Bible, you understand? 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he heareth the prayer of the righteous. Two groups of people, going back to my statement, that... You can't be passive. You can't be indifferent when it comes to the things of the Lord. Not if you're saved anyway. Go to chapter 18, please. Chapter 18. Look at verse 2, if you will. A fool hath no delight in understanding, but that his heart may discover itself. Art's not a fool, according to his folly. What we don't want to do today, tomorrow, and the next day is speak to people about the Lord that don't want to speak about the Lord, or don't want us to speak to them about the Lord, about the scripture. Never cast your pearls before swine. A fool hath no delight in understanding. Just leave me as I am. I'm quite happy living in my own little bubble. Who do you people think you are anyway? But that his heart may discover itself, and yet your heart is desperately wicked. The Bible says not only are you an enemy of God by your wicked works, but that you are filthy from top to bottom, like an unclean rag. Chapter 19, uh, in fact, just quickly look at verse 21, please, from chapter 18. Death and life 
are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. That's a powerful statement. There are passages in Proverbs that will make your blood just go cold and also boil. You've got a statement here about death and life, life and death, heaven and hell, being in the power of the tongue, going back to holy men of God, spake as they were moved by the Holy, Go- uh, by the holy Ghost, how all scripture is inspired of God, like breathed out. It is of no private interpretation, so on and so forth. And also this feeds back to the epistle of James. Be careful what you say, what you do. Many times Satan can control how you say what you say. And you say, do I mean save people? Yes, I think that's quite possible. I remember speaking to a brother some years ago and he said this. He said, I've just come home from work and within five seconds of speaking to my wife, a four-letter word came out of my mouth and I was shot. This guy was saved. He's a born-again King James Bible believer. It can happen. But here, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Going back to my earlier statements, how the scripture can heal and it can hurt. It can console and it can cut. There is such power in the word of God. In fact, during our visit to Liverpool last week, I was street preaching and I made the statement that the Bible is banned in nine countries. And yet those countries have chemical weapons. Some of those countries have uh, cluster bombs. And at least one of those nine countries have nuclear weapons. What's going on? How could it be possible to ban the Bible, a book just full of words, and yet allow such a country to have nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, and cluster bombs? There's power in a scripture, and as such... Never be too surprised if people seek to shut you down like some of the people were doing Liverpool last week. 19 verse 5 please. A false witness shall not be unpunished and he that speaketh lies shall not escape. So I read this a few weeks ago in preparation for Bristol and I also looked at it last night and first thing this morning and it came to me that this statement a false witness shall not be unpunished not just in reference to bearing false witness, Exodus chapter 20, but also in reference to questioning the scripture, undermining the scripture, going back to Revelation 22. If you add to the word of God, if you take from the word of God, you suffer the consequences. Comma, and he that speaketh lies shall not escape. I can't stress enough how sacred this book is, how precious this book is it's dynamite and that's why so many street preachers those brave brothers that go into the streets nine times out of ten are persecuted not just by unsaved people but by saved people you say why would that be the case because a lot of saved people are weak they are convicted in fact going back to Cromwell as that brave man was dying quite possibly one of Britain's greatest sons he was questioning his salvation he wasn't sure if he was saved And he said, why would that be the case? Because he was weak. He had a weak conscience. He was quite likely carnal. Going back to the two natures of the believer. And yet in his mind, he was in great agony. 22.12 The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge. 
and he overthroweth the words of the transgressor. So again, you can't help but think about those people that correct the scripture. They call it high criticism, and they put doubts into the minds of people, like Satan would put doubts into the mind of Eve, like the devil would twist the scripture with Jesus, Luke chapter 4. This book is dynamite. This book is alive. And yet for far too many people, far too many saved people, they don't take it seriously. The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, feeding into the scripture. Also feeding back to your salvation. You are preserved in Christ. You are sealed unto the day of knowledge, excuse me, unto the day of salvation. But also here concerning the word of God. Comma, and he overthroweth the words of the transgressor. Feeding back to my hypothesis, Revelation 22. Go to chapter 23, please. Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23. And look at verse 12, if you will. Apply thine heart unto instruction, and thine ears to the words of knowledge. You've got to do something. You've got to help yourself. It's like the old expression goes, the Lord helps those that help themselves. So much truth in that. You want to get a job? You have to write your CV. You have to write your resume. You have to email your CV, your resume out. You have to fill out an application form. You have to do something. They won't come knocking on your door. Before I was saved, I had a dream. Sounds somewhat corny. But I had a dream. And my dream was this. I wanted to get a band up and running. I wanted to have my own orchestra. And I thought to myself, how can I do it? I'm 19. I'm 20. I'm 21. Not yet saved. And I wanted to have a big band orchestra. Unprecedented. Such things don't happen. I wasn't a musician at the time. I wasn't in the musician's union. I had no contacts. Not even one. And one night I was speaking to Patrick. And he said this. He said, there's a pub in South London called the Lord Napier. And I said, okay. And he told me where it was. And I finished work. And we went down to this old pub in South London. Arrived. It was a Monday night full of musicians, big band musicians. And I got the courage to approach the musicians, as did Patrick. And I went to the rhythm section. He went to the brass section and I got people's names and numbers. Wouldn't do it now, of course. I'm saved. But I was 19. I was 20. I was a young man full of uh, dreams, ambitions. And I got about six or seven phone numbers. And Patrick got around the same number. Within about a week or two of contacting strangers. We didn't know these men. A few women, but, but uh, mainly men. I had enough numbers to put a rehearsal together. I remember phoning up these gentlemen saying, next week on such and such a uh, location, at uh, such and such a time, we are going to have a band rehearsal. We're going to be practicing some of the great tunes. And would you believe they all turned up? And that was the start of a wonderful relationship, allowing me to make four albums. But the point is this. I had to apply myself, verse 12. Apply thine heart unto instruction in the context of scripture and thine ears to the words of knowledge it's like a relationship whether personal or private you have to work at it the same is true when it comes to the word of god go to 24 please 24 look at verse uh, 13 if you will my son eat thou honey because it is good and a honeycomb which is sweet 
to thy taste. So shall the knowledge of wisdom be unto thy soul. When thou hast found it, then there shall be a reward, and thy expectation shall not be cut off. Scripture, on many occasions, is spoken of as being food. Like, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. The Word of God is sweet. It's also sour. Honey is a great type of the Scripture. My son... Eat thou honey, meditate on the word of God, because it is good, infallible. The scripture cannot be broken, and the honeycomb, which is sweet to thy taste. A very similar uh, diet to what the Lord would eat when he came up out of the dead. Uh, John 21, which is sweet to thy taste. The Bible says, taste the Lord. Catholics get all mixed up over the uh, transubstantiation from uh, John chapter 6. They think they are actually eating the body of Christ and actually drinking the blood of Christ. They twist the scripture, and as a result, they turn the Eucharist into an idol. 14. So shall the knowledge of wisdom be unto thy soul. You want to grow as a Christian? Do this. When thou hast found it, then there shall be a reward, judgment seat of Christ, and thy expectation shall not be cut off, arriving barren, Arriving with nothing to show for your life. Go to chapter 29, please. Chapter 29. And look, if you will, at verse 18. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. So when the Old Testament was finished, Malachi... And before Matthew was written, you've got 400 years of silence. And of course, mischief makers come along, as they have done throughout the ages, to try and fill in the gaps, to try and explain why there was a period of silence, why the Lord wasn't busy speaking to such and such a person. And that also explains the Apocrypha, also to some extent. Spurious writings, like the Gospel of Thomas, or other devious and depraved writings but here from chapter 29 in verse 18 in the context where there is no vision like progressive revelation the people perish but also in reference to what jehovah had already revealed to the jews and yet they weren't receiving it they weren't acknowledging it they weren't walking in the light but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Now, of course, you can't be saved by keeping the law. I've already made that case. But you can use the law to keep you on the straight and narrow. You can keep the law to allow you to stay close to the Lord. This is common sense. In fact, most of what you read in the Bible is common sense. Just use a little common sense. Go to chapter 30, and I'll close in verse 5 and 6. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Profound. Every word of God is pure. And I mean every word of God. And here, in the context, the entire Old Testament. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. So word would be neuter, and him would be in the context of a person a personal pronoun you've got two things you've got the word of god which is obviously 
the written scripture referred to in the new term, but God is a person, a masculine pronoun, which means quite simply this, you can't delineate between the two. You can't be saved without the scripture. You can't be saved without the saviour. You can't grow without the scripture. You can't have a relationship without the saviour. The two go hand in hand. And that's why, one more time, around nine countries have banned the Bible. If you live in the West, a good number of so-called religious people are undermining the scripture. And we may meet some of those people today, or tomorrow, or the following day, wanting to silence our mouths. Verse 6, add thou not unto his words. Don't put the apocrypha in. That was a mistake that the Geneva Bible did. The Geneva Bible came out first, and when the Geneva Bible came out, it contained the Apocrypha. The King James came along after the Geneva Bible, and they followed suit. They made the same blunder that the editors did concerning the Geneva Bible. Add thou not unto his words. Get that out of the Bible. But they didn't. They waited 200 years. They waited until Charles Spurgeon came along, and he put pressure on Cambridge and Oxford, two or three publishing houses in the UK. you got Westminster as well. And they took out the Apocrypha. And that's why most of your King James Bibles no longer have the Apocrypha in them because of the good work that Spurgeon did. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Going back to Revelation 22. Don't add to the word of God. Don't take from the word of God. And the awful reality is this. That those that do so, if I understand Revelation 22 correctly, risk having their names blotted out of the Lamb's Book of Life. And they risk having their inheritance taken from them. So we'll hold it there. And already this has run over time. And I've still got some more verses to look at. But we've done enough for this morning. And Lord willing, we will return tomorrow morning and try and finish this message simply entitled god's word so this will be day number two and we are still in golders green north london yesterday we made it up to parliament and we're very blessed to find the oliver cromwell statue and a statue of king charles i almost forgot that the latter is very near to where oliver cromwell is situated i will say that i was very disappointed that cromwell statue is number one, quite a way back, and number two, behind quite high railings. And yet to my shock, to my disgust, there is a huge statue of Nelson Mandela, Gandhi, and other infamous characters of the 20th century. No railings, no limits, no access denied for those uh, infamous characters from the 20th century, and yet... Oliver Cromwell, quite possibly one of Britain's finest sons, is tucked away in a dark corner. Unfortunately, uh, that I think limits people from being able to receive a history lesson, or it hinders people from coming to the full knowledge of the truth as to uh, Oliver Cromwell's role in British history. But nevertheless, we made a video, we shot three videos actually outside Parliament, all concerning Oliver Cromwell. Tracks were distributed during our filming, and then off we went to Leicester Square, where, to our surprise, we found some original artefacts of Houdini, Harry Houdini, and photographs were taken. 
And we also found the original 1920 straitjacket, which has been photographed for November's newsletter. Quite a remarkable day, really, after filming material for Houdini and Cromwell. We went to Charing Cross, a very busy part of central London, where yours truly, Street Preached, and tracks and DVDs were distributed. And I was speaking to a little group yesterday, and I made the suggestion that we've done probably three days' work in one afternoon. A lot of projects were covered, lots of loose ends were tied up, and it was a great day indeed. So yesterday we finished in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6, looking at the Holy Bible, the words of the Lord, the Bible of course, and I was looking at my notes this morning, and it would appear that this will be a three-part message, and therefore for today this will be part two. Let's start, if we can, in John chapter 5, John chapter 5, and look at verse 36 please. But I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. That was the bone of contention as to who exactly the Lord Jesus Christ was. Could he be trusted? Was he the Messiah? What was the whole story to his coming to earth, healing people? And like I said before, he didn't just arrive out of nowhere. He had a witness, and his witness, of course, was John the Baptist. John the Baptist would uh, commend Christ on numerous occasions, and he would confirm that Christ was the anointed of the Lord. But go to John chapter 3, please. John chapter 3, and look at verse 34, if you will. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. Now at first, this verse looks rather simply in reference to Christ having an anointing, Christ being carried by the Spirit. But as I was reading this back in September, in preparation for the Bristol Outreach, it dawned on me that there's much more depth to this. For he speaketh the words of God. That's pretty clear. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. In other words, there was no limit placed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means quite simply this, that everything that you would ever want to know or could ever wish to know about God, about the Lord Jesus Christ, about the scripture, is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if people could understand that, if people could really grasp that statement, that would probably annihilate every religion on the face of the earth. As I was street preaching in Charing Cross last night, hundreds of people were running to and fro, trying to get their trains on time. We had a lot of police. We had uh, a military helicopter flying overhead. A lot of people were watching. A good number of people were listening. Tracks were being distributed. And yet all these people have all got their own truths, their own beliefs, their own ideologies. And they actually believe that their truth or their beliefs, their ideologies, are just as important as the Lord Jesus Christ's. And yet if you drill in to what they believe, they've got no real hope at all. They don't stand in street corners like we do. They don't distribute tracts like we do. They don't street preach like we do. They don't get a banner up like we do. They have no message for anyone. It's their own private religion. But 34 is absolutely amazing, outstanding. It simply means this, that everything that God wanted to reveal to anyone for now, he would do so through one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at 35, please. The Father loveth the Son, and had given all things into his hand. 
So you can't really miss it, can you? If you think of an entrepreneur, perhaps, or a philanthropist back in the day, or even today. If you think of a well-known family, a wealthy family, the firstborn inherits everything. The firstborn is the heir. Of course, there are um, some uh, situations where that doesn't occur. In fact, just a few weeks ago, the wife of Lord Lucan died. And Lord Lucan was a very infamous character. He murdered, I think, two people, or he murdered one person, tried to kill another one, escaped in the dead of night, and his wife never really forgave him for that. And their children sided with their father over the mother's uh, belief that she was intended to be, to be the victim. And Lucan disappeared. He may be dead. We don't know. But last week she died, 91, 92. And she cut all her children out of her will. But normally, normally the firstborn would receive everything. So when it says how the father loveth the son... And hath given all things into his hand. It means simply that. That's why the Lord would say that he had power to judge. He had power to uh, take life and to give life. And he ultimately had power to lay his life down. And take it up again. You won't find Muhammad offering that. You won't find Mary, the so-called Queen of Heaven. Or any Pope of Rome offering that. The last five Popes have had miserable deaths. The last five Popes have either been uh, poisoned. Uh eradicated, erased out of uh, papal circles, or they've died of natural causes. John Paul II had an awful death. He had uh, Parkinson's, a bit of Alzheimer's. He was dribbling all over the place like a baby. He couldn't stop shaking. I mean, talk about a man in pain. None of his charismatic priests stepped forward to heal him. None of his uh, mystics stepped forward to help him out. And he would die in, what, 2005? Nobody resurrected him. What What a sight that would have been. And when he was dying, all of the world leaders put their, their uh, agendas on hold. Around that time, Prince Charles was due to marry his long-term mistress. And he said, well, I'm going to marry her anyway. No, he didn't say that. He cancelled his wedding. And a few days later, John Paul II died. Charles and Camilla and other VIPs in Britain flew to uh, Rome, paid homage, quote-unquote, to the Pope. And around that time, three American presidents flew in from Washington on Air Force One and got down on their knees and prayed in front of a corpse, a stinking corpse. Nobody laid hands on the Pope. Nobody resurrected him. He lived, he died. As a scripture would say, how it is pointed unto man once to die, but after this a judgment. But 34, 35, you can't miss it. There's no limit put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why his words are powerful. That's why his words can heal and hurt. Look at 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. So it's simple to me, any time, anywhere, any person, anywhere, under any circumstances, believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, they are saved. They have everlasting life. And did you notice, no works were involved. No confirmation, no circumcision, no baptism, no nothing. No keeping of the Sabbath, no turning from all of your sins, just believing. True belief, a real belief based on historical facts, not on what we think took place. Go to Second Corinthians chapter 1. So like I say, this is day number 2 of a 3 day uh, trip to the north of uh, London. And so far so good, we've got a lot of material filmed. Tracks have been distributed along with DVDs. 
Uh, we will be heading off to probably Wembley in around an hour's time to do what we can there. And like we've said many times over the years, we like to kill two birds with one stone. Cromwell was, for me, the highlight of yesterday. Houdini was the highlight for Patrick yesterday. Uh, street preaching was probably the highlight for all of us when it came to raising our voices, trying to connect with people. And I know what people think. They see a guy like me on a street corner. They see a group like us spread out with a banner, tracks, DVDs, and they think that we are fruitcakes, quite simply, or that we have learning difficulties, or that we are mentally retarded. And yet this is what the scripture said would happen. The Bible said that the preaching of the gospel is foolishness to those that are perishing, but to those of us which are saved, it's wonderful news. It's great news. And the Lord has chosen something which is foolish in the eyes of the many to glorify himself. Second Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 20, please. For the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen, unto the glory of God by us. That fits very nicely with John chapter 3, 34, 35, 36. All the promises of God in him, Jesus Christ, are yea, meaning yes, and in him amen, meaning let it be, unto the glory of God by us. I never tire of praising the Lord. I don't, I don't really praise him enough, if the truth be known. And I get a lot of uh, happiness, street preaching, trying to connect with people, trying to glorify the Lord. And yes, a good number of times, people will try and avoid you. They will try and walk around you. And yet, I still believe that inside most people, most unsaved people, they have a sneaking level of admiration for what we are doing. They know that we have something which they don't have. And there's a part of them which is somewhat envious of that. All of the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen, unto the glory of God by us. That's remarkable. And it simply means that, uh, what I said a few moments ago, that had you seen the Lord Jesus Christ back in the first century, had you been privileged to hear him preach on the Sermon on the Mount, or in that synagogue in Capernaum, John chapter 6, or had you seen him walking on the water at 3 o'clock in the morning, you would have been in for quite a blessing, quite a treat. I mean, to see the master at work, to hear his words, to see his miracles, but ultimately to listen to his preaching. I mean, when we speak about preachers, when we speak about those that are gifted to deliver a message, he really was the real thing. I know some people think that Gandhi was special, and I know that uh, Winston Churchill wrote a lot of books after the Second World War, and his statue was also on display yesterday. No railings around his statue. And all those men wrote a lot of books. Uh, I think Mandela wrote a couple, but Church was probably the most prolific out of that generation of uh, 20th century leaders. But most of those books now are in museums, libraries. If you study at Oxford or Cambridge, as far as I'm aware, uh, Winston Churchill's writings are not part of the uh, curricula. I wouldn't say that people don't read such material if they study at Oxbridge, as it's called, but when it comes to the Word of God, when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, his words are powerful and mighty. Go to Psalm chapter 12, please. Psalm chapter 12. So this will be a three-part message, simply referred to as God's Word. And like I've said over the years, we love the Scripture. We stand by the Scripture. We believe that if the Lord could create the earth by himself, and he did, he was able to preserve it by himself, and he has done, and continues to do so. With that being the case, he'd have no problem, no problem whatsoever, inspiring his word and preserving it. 
Psalm chapter 12, Psalm chapter 12, look at verse 6 please. The words of the Lord are pure words, a silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Seven, of course, is synonymous with the Saviour. Seven is found many times in the book of Revelation. And you will have several books, like the Bishop's Bible and some other books that would precede the King James Bible, along with the Geneva Bible. But when the King James Bible came along, that book set the pace. That book set the standard. Every Bible translation that has come out since 1611 will look at the 1611 and see how the two line up. Every student of Scripture, if such as a faithful student of Scripture, will look at the King James, appreciate this is the final authority, and then turn to other translations to see how they match up. And do they got any brains, any level of honesty? They will know that nothing matches the King James. 7. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So you were told that his words are pure. 7. Tried in a furnace of earth seven times, allowing such to become purified, of course. The Lord would keep them, preserve them from this generation and forever. That's wonderful news. It means that if you have a Bible, if you have a King James Bible, you can believe it, you can trust it. You can take what it says at face value. There's no need to correct anything. The Lord made a promise. The Lord cannot lie. Psalm 18. Psalm 18. Look. At verse 30, please. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all those that trust in him. His way is perfect, flawless. The word of the Lord is tried. Over in the Gospel of John, the Lord would say it would be wise to put his words into practice, to take what he had said and actually try and do what he had said. A good number of people hear about the Lord, they read about the Lord, and they pick out bits of what he would say, and never apply those words, or they deliberately take those those words out of context, and force the Bible to contradict, they force the scripture to appear like some kind of an archaic book, and like I said yesterday morning, this book is supernatural, and at the same time you are told to use common sense when you read it. As for God, his way is perfect. Well, if you think of that verse from John chapter 14, I am the way, truth and the life no man cometh unto the father but by me you can see how these two verses fit nicely the word of the lord is tried in the context old testament but as a new testament bible believer we would take this verse to apply to the entire bible here's a buckler to all those that trust in him buckle up if you are saved you got a journey ahead of you and you'll need to buckle up tight and allow the captain of your salvation to get you made to be Go to Psalm chapter 50, please. And these verses could also be uh, preached on the streets if uh, you felt inclined to do so. Psalm 50, look at verse 17, please. Seeing thou hatest instruction and castest my words behind thee. The words of the Lord are a blessing to the saints and are a curse to the lost. I know why people reject the gospel because they don't like the idea of someone somewhere watching them, someone somewhere keeping a record of what they do. That's why a lot of unsaved people run from the Saviour. A lot of saved people run from the Saviour as well. A lot of saved people don't like the scripture. A lot of saved people find the Bible boring. They find it a dry book. You say, why would that be the case? Well, they're carnal. They're in the world. Their roots are very deep. Look at 22. Now consider this. 
Ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. Well, in the context, this is aimed at apostate Israel, and we can easily apply this to apostate Christianity, apostate Christendom. In fact, just yesterday, we got the bus back from uh, Westminster to Golders Green, and I was reading about an ecumenical church service in Brussels that took place yesterday, being uh, Reformation Day, October the 31st. And it was interesting to read. Apparently, there was this Protestant church somewhere in Brussels that were meeting to a member, uh, Martin Luther, and it was pretty well attended, I should say. And out of maybe 500 people present, there were around 12 Catholics. And these, uh, this group of militant Catholics arrived, sat pretty much in the front row, and decided to read out the rosary loud, or recite the rosary loud. And I mean pretty loud, not just for a few seconds, but for around 20 minutes. The entire service was disrupted, the police were called, and uh, quite rightly were frog-marched out. And he said, but what about the ecumenical movements? Well, yes, I guess it's still as strong as ever before, but when you've got a group of militant Catholics trying to take over a so-called Christian service, what else could you do? And this crowd decided to call the police and have these Catholics ejected. It would have happened had it been the other way around, don't worry. I'm sure if there had been 12 militant uh, Christians that had attended a Catholic service yesterday and started to read maybe passages from Revelation, like the Great Whore, the Harlots, and read it again and again and again and again and again, you can be pretty sure that the uh, security in such a church would have ejected such unwanted visitors. But 22 from Psalm 50, I think also feeds back into one rejecting the word, the words of God. Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. Those words are from God Almighty. Those words are inspired, and those words should send shockwaves through anyone's nerve system. That would only be relevant, of course, to those that are spiritually alive if you are spiritually dead this won't even touch you go to john chapter 5 john chapter 5 and look if you will at verse 37 and the father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape in the context jesus christ speaking to unbelieving jews apostate israel and this would have been quite a statement to make. The Father himself, which hath sent me, I didn't send myself, hath borne witness of me through the miracles, through John's affirmation of his ministry. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. So it's pretty clear of that in the context. He's saying to the Jews that, number one, they'd never seen the Lord's shape like a visible image of him. And number two, had never heard his voice, which you could suggest, going back to inspiration, going back to the scripture, going back to the fact that the Lord had spoken to his prophets, his messengers, they would write down what he had revealed to them, and yet even that was neglected by a good number of Jews. When we think about Jewry, we think about Israel, we sometimes think that all of the Jews back in the day were religious, and they weren't. There were a good number of Jews that were secular, that were liberal, that were apostate. The ones that the Lord Jesus Christ came up against time after time were the Hasidic Jews, the Orthodox Jews, like the people that live in Golders Green. And we've seen a good number of those people over the last few days. They dress differently. They, uh, for the most part, speak 
in Hebrew or Yiddish. Yes, they will speak in English, but mainly they speak in their own tongue. They don't integrate, they don't have much contact with the Gentiles or the Goings, as they call such people. They don't preach on street corners. They don't hold up the name of Jehovah. They were told to do so back in the Old Testament. They were told to be a light to the Gentiles. And this is where they have failed, Jehovah. They're very good at doing religion. They're very good at keeping the Sabbath. In fact, this hotel that we are staying at shuts down Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. And the owners of this hotel are nowhere to be found. And you say, well, how do they get around an emergency? That's easy. They hire the Gentiles. The Gentiles are on hand to check you in, check you out, to uh, serve you your meals and what have you. And yet over our breakfast this morning, we were discussing this. They can't really keep the law because the owners or owner of this hotel is trying to keep the law. And yet he's still making money. This is a 24-7 industry. People are booking in. People are hiring rooms on their website. And you know perfectly well that they don't shut their website down during the Sabbath. Of course not. They'll still take money during the Sabbath, which is a violation of the Sabbath. They have uh, contractors. They have people that are bringing products here, taking products away. It's an ongoing industry. You can't shut down your hotel to keep the Sabbath or the Sabbat. Not really. And like I say, what they do is they abstain from the physical elements of working on the Sabbath and delegate such to unsaved Gentiles. Look at 38, please. And ye have not his word abiding in you, for whom he hath sent him ye believe not. So the Jews were very privileged, of course. They wrote the Old Testament. They were the custodians of the Old Testament. They were the messengers, the people of Jehovah. And yet Almighty God's word didn't abide in them. For whom he hath sent him ye believe not. It does mystify me many times when I look back through the scripture as to why this clash took place time after time. It was bad enough to reject the Messiah, but to question his words. And also the words from the Old Testament leaves me baffled. 39. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. They thought by searching the scriptures they could be saved. They thought by doing religion, they could be saved. They thought by going to mass, going to mosque, doing this, doing that, that somehow they could be saved. And of course, we know as Bible believers that we can't be saved by our works. No way in the world can you be saved by your works. And yet the first part of 39 is wonderful. Search the scriptures, dig into the scripture. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me pretty profound everything and i mean everything in the old testament testified pointed to the son of god you got many types and shadows back in the old testament which would be lost on the lord's initial audience and people today but for those of us which are saved we see straight away what's going on we can understand we can decipher some of the deeper messages back in the old testament and yet for the scribes and the phds the so-called reverend fathers during the time of Lord Jesus Christ, such a statement from 39 went right over their heads. They would read very diligently in Hebrew three times a day the Old Testament. They would study the scriptures very carefully, and they still do to this present day, and yet they are blinded, according to Second Corinthians 4.4. Satan has been able to blind them. He's been able to bind them up in a false, obsolete, works-based religion. 
You won't find many people saying that, but I will. 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. Every Jew, every Orthodox Jew, every Hasidic Jew, going back to the time of the Lord, right up until now, if they go to synagogue at all, if they have any kind of a prayer life, think very highly of Moses. And it's fair to say that they probably worship him as well, like Muslims worship Muhammad. Muslims officially uh, make the case that only Allah is worthy of worship, and to worship anyone outside of Allah is idolatry, is sinful, and yet every Muslim, if the truth be known, I mean religious Muslims, Muslims that go to mosque regularly, worship Muhammad. They worship him, they think very highly of him, and the same is true of Jews. They have a great love for Moses, and we appreciate Moses, of course we do, we are Bible believers, but we don't worship him. I can so easily uh, profile Moses within five minutes and show you a lot of flaws, a lot of sins in his nature, in his character. Do not think that I would accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. Moses indirectly will accuse them, will condemn them at the judgment. Why? 46. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Everything that you find back in the Old Testament, like the first five books, and perhaps Job, some have suggested that Moses wrote Job, testified of the coming Messiah, the sinless Son of God, and those books will be opened at the great white throne judgments, and millions upon millions of Jewish men and women, boys and girls, those that were of the age of accountability, will be just stunned to realize that Moses' writings from the Torah, have condemned them. 47, and I'll close. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? Well, obviously, you can read writings, you can read the Old Testament, and like I say, a good number of Jews in gold is green do. I won't suggest that all of these Jews in gold is green are Bible believers. I'm sure there are a good number of them that go through the, go through the rituals, go through the motions, that are in a system that wouldn't dare question it, that have no real faith, but they've been born into it. And we know that when they come out of it, they are stigmatized. They are treated very badly. And we think about the sin of apostasy, which Muslims uh, suffer with when they come out of Islam and they get born again. But it's a similar problem for Jewish people as well that come out of Jewry and go on to get saved or just fall away altogether. They're just cut off. Persona non grata. So this will be part two of a three-part message, like I say. And tomorrow morning, Lord willing, we will look at part three and try and tie these three messages up, tie them all together, and pray that the Lord will bless his word. And we pray that he will bless us as we head off to the streets of Wembley very shortly. And we seek his blessing in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So this will be day three. This will be our final get-together in Gold is Green. And yesterday we went to Wembley, and it's fair to say that if the stadium wasn't there, a very large and ostentatious uh, design, the town would have been probably nondescript, wouldn't be much to write home about. Those that live in the Wembley area are mainly poor, indifferent, and when we arrived yesterday morning, there was a level of hostility, uh, a lot of apathy, indifference, like I say, so we parked the car up, spent... Not particularly long there, gave some tracks out, and then we drove to a place called Hendon, 
which was just like a long street. Not much happening there. So we came back, had a break, and then mid-afternoon went to Golders Green, the high street. We've been staying in Golders Green for the last three days and spent the afternoon there, which turned out to be quite productive. Gave out a lot of tracks, and uh, we think our presence there has hopefully made a difference. So this will be day three, like I say, and this will be our final look at God's Word. And let's continue through John's Gospel. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Look at verse 36, please. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Free from yourself, uh, free from sin, free from the condemnation of the law. Going back to yesterday's study concerning the Jews' indifference, hatred towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he was saying was this, that had you loved Moses, had you loved the prophets, had you loved the law, you would have loved me because I came from my father and therefore my words should have found a place in your hearts. But the suggestion would be that they didn't really love Moses or the law or the scripture. They were simply going through the motions. They had an external level of righteousness, an external level of religion. And again, I can't help but think if some of the Jewish people in Golders Green are the same. <coughs> Verse 37. I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me, because my word hath no place in you. So, like I say, it's bad enough that they wouldn't receive him. It's bad enough that they would reject him, like as a person, like as the Messiah. And 2,000 years on, it's still pretty much the same. But on top of that, they wanted to kill him, because his word had no place in them. And here we are, some, what, nearly 2,000 years on, and there's still much indifference. Look at verse uh, 43, please. Why do ye not understand my speech, even because ye cannot hear my word? So they could hear him in a physical sense, in an audible sense, but the hearts were dead. The hearts were closed. Like most people today, most people are spiritually dead, and that's why... So few people are getting saved. And yet for the street preacher who feels somewhat disillusioned, keep on going. Because there's every chance that what you are doing, nobody else is doing. It's very easy to criticize a street preacher. It's very easy to criticize an evangelist who may at times go over the top, uh, slightly preach a legalistic gospel. But what would you rather have, such a person or no person? Look at verse 47, please. He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Historically, they were Jews. Historically, they were the people of God. Historically, their ancestors wrote the Bible. But this generation were very little, a very uh, different kettle of fish, very religious, like I say, would keep the Sabbath, the feast days, would uh, celebrate the Sabbath, would make no eye contact with Gentiles. And that verse comes to mind when they handed the Lord over to Pilate, and it says they wouldn't even come into the uh, judgment hall because they were fearful of defining themselves. And yet by crucifying their Messiah, they'd done just that. 51, verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Picturing the new birth, of course. Picturing, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Then to the Jews, unto him, now we know that thou hast a devil, blasphemy. Abraham is dead, and the prophets. And thou sayest, if a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. Well, first of all, 
He said you wouldn't see death. They've changed the word of God to taste of death. Within one verse, they've changed what he said. Going back to the serpents, clever and conniving trick on Eve, doubting the words of the Lord and twisting the words of the Lord. Also, he would do the same to Jesus, Luke chapter 4. But it's interesting because it says here that, um, or Abraham is dead, I should say, Abraham is dead and the prophets, which suggests to me that the Jews knew that there were no more prophets up until the Lord's arrival, which would suggest to me that the Old Testament canon was closed. There was no more uh, need for people to receive ongoing revelations. You've got 400 years of silence from Malachi to Matthew. So the Jews were, were, were correct in that point. They were correct that the prophets were dead. But this battle continues on. If a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. Again, that's not what he said. He said, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death, not taste of death. 53. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets are dead? Whom makest thou thyself? Not only was he greater than the prophets, he was lord of the temple and lord of the Sabbath. And if you speak to a Jew, if you're able to do so, you put that to a Jew today, they'll go hysterical. 54. Jesus answered, If I honour myself, my honour is nothing. It is my Father that honoureth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I should be a liar like unto you, but I know him, and keep his saying. I keep his words. His words abide in me. I am a personification of the word of God. Going back to John 3.34. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So, I would say this, that when Abraham offered up Isaac, he got a glimpse of the resurrection. He saw something which we don't quite understand. And he knew that what he was taking part in had a much greater significance to it. 57. Then to the Jews unto him, thou art not yet. 50 years old. And as thou seen Abraham, they had no idea what he was speaking about. Going back to the new birth, John chapter 3, Abraham, excuse me, uh, Nicodemus. Nicodemus thought that Jesus Christ was speaking about a physical rebirth. You can't be physically reborn. I mean, it's laughable. Nicodemus was this great Jewish scholar, and he seriously thought that Jesus Christ was speaking about a, a physical rebirth. And the Lord Jesus Christ had to gently clip his wings. And here, it's the same kind of thing. 58. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Now any Jew that knew any part of the Old Testament knew perfectly well that the term I am meant the eternal one. I am that I am. And therefore for Jesus Christ to say I am, not I have been or one day I will be, but to say I am in the present tense meant that he was affirming to be almighty God. Look at 59. Then took they up stones to cast him out. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. They had no interest in him, like Catholics, have no interest in Christ, like Muslims, have no interest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's like I've said over the years, if your religion works for you, whether it's true or not, you'll stick with it, right? You'll stick with it because it works for you. Go to John chapter 12, and when you die, you go straight to hell. John chapter 12, uh, John chapter 12, look at verse uh, 47, please. If a man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. 
For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. So for here and now, the Lord is in the business of saving people. Jesus means Jehovah saves. Emmanuel means a God with us. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that will judge him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day, being the word of God, of course, like the written word of God. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me commandments, what I should say and what I should speak again. Everything that he would say, everything that he spoke, came from the Father. He didn't just make this up as he went along, like most religious people have done over the years. Verse 50, And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. The Father speaks to the Son, the Son speaks to us, and yet for a good number of people, they miss it, and they miss it because they want to miss it. Go to John chapter 14, John chapter 14, uh, look at verse 23 please. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. So do you have the words of God? Do you have the word of God? If you were a Catholic living through the Dark Ages, number one, you probably couldn't read or write. Number two, you wouldn't have known Latin. That was the language of the day. I mean, you may have understood some words, but you couldn't read or write Latin, not at an academic level. And the Catholic Church didn't refer to the New Testament or the Old Testament, really. Their uh, liturgy was in Latin. The priests were speaking Latin. In fact, I'm told up until quite recently, like the mid-1960s, Catholic priests had to learn Latin for the Tridentine Mass. And one priest that we knew was summoned up to Archbishop's house in London. And he was told to stand to attention. And the Archbishop came in and decided to have some fun with this Irish priest, a working-class priest from Southern Ireland. And this Archbishop, a public schoolboy uh, from aristocracy in the UK, a very well-to-do upper-class family, decided to speak to this uh, this uh, Irish working-class priest for five minutes in Latin. And this priest wasn't able to uh, respond to him, and he felt so small, and he did it to belittle him. That's power. That's power. That's power that the clergy had over the laity. But in that case, that's power concerning a form of priest, which isn't found in Scripture, dominating another form of priest, which isn't found in Scripture. 24... He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not of mine, but the Father's which sent me. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, like the colts, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. So one more time, the Father speaks to the Son. The Son speaks first and foremost to the apostles. They write down the New Testament, and the church, of course, reads the New Testament, believes what it reads, uh, adores what it reads and if they are privileged enough will preach what they read go to chapter 15 chapter 15 look at verse um, 7 please if ye abide in me and my words abide in you you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you herein is my father glorified that ye bear much fruit so shall ye be my disciples abide in the vine to be able to grow verse 9 as a father hath loved me so have i loved you continue ye in my love in the context of the apostles for care of the church 
Verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. It's like a relationship. Husband to wife, wife to husband, parent to child, child to parent. It's as simple as that. This isn't rocket science. Again, much of what we read in the scripture is common sense. Uh, Go to chapter 17, please. John chapter 17. Uh, John chapter 17. Look at verse uh, 14, if you will. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Nothing has changed if you speak about the Lord Jesus Christ on a regular basis. I mean, just simple stuff. The world will turn against you. And that's why you were told to separate from the world, because the world hates God. The world have no need for the word of God. And they certainly have no need for Bible-believing Christians. 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The scripture cannot be broken. The scripture was inspired. The scripture was preserved. This book is dynamite, like I keep saying. Banned in nine countries. Parts of Canada will prosecute uh, Christians for what they say and for what they do. And there have been court cases in Britain over the last two or three years where Bible believers have been arrested for street preaching, for simply opening their mouths. 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, uh, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So we are one in the Lord Jesus Christ through the resurrection. We don't need to come together with Catholics, Protestants, Methodists, Baptists, what have you. We are one the moment we all believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's fascinating because he says that he doesn't pray for the world. He has no interest in the world, the world are under a judgment, but he prays for those that were given to him. Now, in the context, it will be in reference to the apostles. The apostles were given to him for service. I know Calvinists like to uh, quote these verses and argue that this is in reference to their salvation. Well, it's not. It's simply in reference to the apostles' call for service, much like uh, the apostle Paul. Go to chapter 20, please. Chapter 20, uh, chapter 20, and look, if you will, at 30. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. I've heard Catholics quote this piece of scripture to give credence to their uh, traditional system, like the Catholic Church and the Bible are sort of lined up side by side, and the Catholic Church becomes a final authority. But that's not what this says. It simply says that the Lord Jesus Christ would do many miracles in the presence of his disciples, which were not written down, because there wouldn't be enough room to write down everything that he did. And yet foolish Catholics like to run to these verses to argue that tradition can run alongside the scripture and tradition can overwrite tradition. A very dangerous belief indeed. Go to John 21 and I'll close. John 21 and look at verse 18, please. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not, in concern to the apostle Peter, of course. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. 
And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. Follow me, Simon Peter. Don't follow this church or that church. And for today, if you are a Catholic, follow the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a Protestant, follow the Lord Jesus Christ. 20. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Simon Peter wasn't privy to the betrayer of the Lord. He wasn't in the loop, whereas John, the son of Zebedee, would be. 23. Then went the saying abroad among the brethren, that that disciple should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him, He shall not die, but if I will, that he tarry till I come. What is that to thee? So in one minute, two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, five minutes of this discussion being broadcasted to the church, people are already misunderstanding it. And if this wasn't written down, they would have gone away with a false impression that Simon wouldn't die. Excuse me, that uh, John wouldn't die. But that wasn't what took place. And this is a great verse to rebuke tradition. Because without this verse, you wouldn't have known what the Lord actually said. 24. This is a disciple which testifieth of these things, and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, everyone, I suppose, that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. So that, number one, brings to an end this false belief of tradition running alongside the scripture and hopefully explains clearly and unequivocally that the word of God is God's word, that it's inspired, that you are commanded to hear it, to obey it and to apply it. If the scripture cannot be broken, if thy word is truth, if the words that came out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ were from heaven then we have a duty as Bible believers to believe such, to preach such, and to hold up the word of God like through street preaching, like through evangelism, like going door to door. That's really all there is to it. We have a great message. We want to share it with people. We don't want to rob people of this wonderful message. And yet we know that a good number of people don't want to hear it. A good number of religious people don't want to hear it. And become enemies of the Lord, enemies of his servants, and as a result will be condemned. So three messages recorded from Golders Green in North London, and we're very blessed to have been able to come to London. This will be our final get-together in 2017. Like I said from part one, we were able to do Oxford, Cambridge, Bristol, and now Golders Green this year, and it was a great blessing for us to film the Oliver Cromwell statue, take some photographs of Harry Houdini, street preach outside Charing Cross Station, distribute many DVDs, gospel tracks, and just have a presence. I'm very uh, clear in my mind that should anybody want to speak to us, they can always come over to us. And if nobody comes over to us, then I'm of the opinion that the Lord's people were not present when we were around, or those that will one day be the Lord's people, because if they were the Lord's people, or if they are going to one day be the Lord's people, they would have come over and spoken to us. So on that note, I pray that the Lord will bless uh, this three-part message 
I pray he will bless our time in gold is green, all the tracks that went out. And we know from uh, 1 Corinthians that the word of God is blessed, goes out through the power of the Spirit of the Lord, and will never return void. And I pray that Almighty God will bless our work and these three recordings over the last three days. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.